Does our personal faith have implications for our national life? We realize that we have personal belief in God, but how does our faith in Jesus and His message change the way we treat our neighbors? These are important questions we need to consider if we're going to fully embrace the faith that follows Jesus of Nazareth. How did Jesus describe that to His first followers? Fortunately, we have the clear answer provided for us in the Bible. This week, we're going to focus our attention on what Jesus said it meant to love God and love your neighbor as you love yourself. God, give us His grace so that we might live in His grace with others. This is nothing but grace. Good morning. This broadcast worship is brought to you live each week, and this week we had a couple of technical difficulties that delayed our beginning, but I'm glad you're with us now. Our church name is First Baptist Church, and our history and traditions speak of our love of God and the love that He has for all people and the respect and dignity we possess together as His children. You are our brothers and sisters, and when you're with us, you're home. I'm the pastor of a loving and welcoming group of people located in Madison, North Carolina. Together we're dedicated to being followers of Jesus Christ, a very real and important historical person. He is our teacher and model. We have much to learn about being his disciples or followers. So we welcome you every week to come along with us, no matter what your background, and learn more about our church and hopefully gain access to some helps for you in your spiritual life. You can do that by going to our website. Now, these words are all spelled out, www.firstbaptistchurchofmadison.org. It's very simple. Please go there, and you'll find things that will help you in your spiritual life. Welcome to this hour of nothing but grace. This is a time for worship and Bible study that will inspire your hearts and give you good news. I'm Dr. Chuck McGathy, a fellow traveler or pilgrim on Life's Highway. I'll be sharing with you today my sermon on the topic, Hope for the Nation. You will also be hearing Bible study in the second half of this broadcast. This week, I am rejoining our teaching team, shared by my fellow ministers, the Reverend Marsha McQueen and the Reverend Jan Walsh. So stay tuned. I believe God has a message for you today. Let's now move into our time of inspiration from the words of Scripture. This week, I am going to share with you the words of Jesus from the Gospel or Good News according to Matthew. Get your Bibles ready. As you do, let's hear our choir as they sing a version of I Love to Tell the Story, arranged by Lloyd Larson. This is Tell the Story.
What I'm about to share with you may well be one of the most important parts of all the scripture. It is the heart and soul of our faith, and you need to know it well if you're going to be a serious follower of Jesus Christ. What is often shortened to the single word Christian. Being a Christian is not a virtue of birth, race, or heritage. It is not a political position, nor is it a compliance with a predetermined set of ethical constructs that makes one a Christian. A Christian is one who listens to and tries to follow the Lord whom he or she accepts as their master. Therefore, what Jesus teaches and why is of preeminent importance for the genuine Christ follower called a Christian. So please do not be confused. The word Christian, though it may be used many ways originally and truly, has but one meaning. A Christian is a follower of Jesus Christ. That is why we consider his words every week. What does it mean to be his follower? Listen to this conversation about the meaning of Christ following. Though it is an ancient interaction, it remains applicable to each one of us today. The quality of our modern faith is judged still by the same standard. From the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. On my travels one summer, a few years ago, I stopped regularly at a restaurant of a well-known fast food chain. On one of those stops, I was surprised to see mounted on the wall a resin reproduction of the Ten Commandments. I did not expect that a place that specialized in hamburgers would be a place of religious instruction. There were in that McDonald's mounted prominently on one wall two tablets bearing a strong resemblance to the movie version Props. Uh, that Charlton Heston carried in the screen version of the Ten Commandments. These reproductions were set side by side, just above the soft drink dispenser. Oddly, the tablets were reversed, mounted out of the biblical order, a fact that prompted me to wonder if this was meant as a political statement more than a religious encouragement. I wondered if the person responsible for the display knew the Bible very well. More likely, the mistake was prompted by something other than religious instruction. Most of us know that the Ten Commandments have been in the news from time to time. In fact, the Ten Commandments can't seem to stay out of the news. As a pastor, I am fascinated by the persistent insistence that public displays of the Ten Commandments will somehow right the wrongs of society. The truth is that it will not do that. Understanding them, however, might bear some good result. There is a kind of in-your-face religiosity these days that wants to force-feed faith. Overzealous warriors for religion are often tempted to defend God, blurring the lines of separation between their beliefs and an appropriate respect for those who believe differently than they do. Yet Jesus taught his followers something different. As a Baptist Christian, I am always fascinated by the vigorous debate that continues regarding church-state separation. Historically, Baptists were the vanguard in this nation, establishing the important principle of a separated church and state. That is an historical fact. Through the years, though, some who use the name Baptist have forgotten and even refocused their religious heritage. As I was in theological training, one outspoken ultra-conservative Baptist preacher denied this heritage, even going so far as to claim that the very idea of a separated church and state was the imagining of an infidel. Sadly, his recast of theology and history caught on. But is this what Jesus taught? Is this the conviction of the forebearers of our faith? 
everyone, it seems, is now choosing sides. I used to listen to talk radio when I drove my car. It was a way of understanding people and their arguments. I was engaged in this activity one day some years ago. It was during a time when an Alabama judge later turned politician was making a big splash by placing the Ten Commandments on public property in order to make a political religious statement. A popular radio talk show host with whom I frequently disagreed said that over 80% of Americans polled were appalled that the granite monument inscribed with the Ten Commandments was removed from the lobby of an Alabama courthouse. The radio journalist went further in his comments. He suggested that preachers, priests, and rabbis in the main were failing by not vigorously protesting the removal of a religious symbol from the public square. Jesus, he said, would be carrying a placard in front of the courthouse. Then he added that Jesus never faced a situation like this, so we don't really know what he would have done. Actually, he is quite wrong about that. Jesus did face that situation. First century Palestine was supercharged with tension between the state and religion. Jesus did not lead a protest march against Roman rule. If you want to know how Jesus introduces the concept of separated religion and state, read Matthew 22, 15 through 22. It records what happened just before our scripture I read for today. Jesus' teaching to his followers was profound. He told them, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. I wish everyone would read, and more importantly, understand the importance of the Ten Commandments. I want that for people because the Ten Commandments make clear the kind of involvement God wants to have with each of us. Furthermore, I believe that until you and I get our hearts right before God, we will never understand the relationship between justice and mercy, what the Bible calls grace. Now, should a granite statue of the Ten Commandments have been left in place in Alabama in front of a public building? Well, ultimately, you must decide within your individual conscience as a Christian about that. As you decide, all I ask is that you consider this. If you were facing a trial that would determine your guilt or innocence, or perhaps facing a lawsuit against another party, how would you feel? How would you feel if you were in Salt Lake City and you had to pass by a granite monument of the doctrines and covenants of the Latter-day Saint Church before you entered a courtroom? Or what if you were in a courthouse in Hawaii and there displayed were the justice teachings of Buddha? Would you feel concerned? Or suppose you were in suburban Detroit, an area heavily populated by adherents to Islam, and suppose you were seeking justice or defending yourself against a lawsuit, and the judge required you to pass by the Quran before you were examined. Would that make you feel uncomfortable? Would it bother you? It would bother me. In fact, I would be angry. I would view it as a violation of my God-given right to practice my religion without coercion. Remember the words of our Lord who taught, Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. I can imagine now that some of you think I'm courageous, and some of you may even think I'm crazy. As long as you think in the light of the biblical revelation, I've done my job. No matter where you stand on this complex issue, I hope we can all agree that keeping God's commandments is what is really important here. After all, it does us no good even if we put monuments everywhere if we don't know and follow God's commands. Let's put that to the test. How many of the Ten Commandments can you name from memory? How well have you treasured God's Word in your heart? Would it shock you if I told you that most, most, who consider themselves devout, evangelical, and committed Christians cannot recall all of the Ten Commandments. That is a fact. If you can name them all, do you understand what they mean? Do you know the order in which they fall? It is important to understanding the covenant God established with his people. And most of all, do you keep them? 
Now I'm getting into that area described by the cynical old deacon who once warned his pastor, Preacher, you've just stopped preaching, now you're meddling. And of course, the courageous minister holds firm, knowing that his job is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Well, let's think about why we even have the Ten Commandments. The purpose of the commandments is not to take away all our fun. In fact, it is just the opposite. God wants you to have an abundant life. He yearns for your life to be full and meaningful. He is not a bully in the sky looking for you to step out of line and then just bust you one when you fail. No, God loves you. He wants what is good for you. That is not just a New Testament theme. It is a biblical theme. When God gave Moses those ten commands for all the people, it was an act of love. Moses told the Hebrews, don't be afraid, for God has spoken in this way to show you his awesome power, the power of God to deliver us from sin and death. So what ten things did God want his people to know that would enable them to live full and meaningful lives? Do not worship any other gods. Do not make or worship an idol of any kind. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not testify falsely against your neighbor. Do not covet your neighbor's possessions. These were ten commands that God wanted the children of Israel to know. These were ten commands that the children of Israel recently escaped from Egypt and wandering in the wilderness needed to know. You see, they were having problems figuring out which God to worship, a God made of wood or metal or the Lord God. They had problems allowing themselves to rest. There were also the relational difficulties between family members, friends, and neighbors. They lied, swore by God's name to what they knew wasn't true. They wanted their neighbor's stuff, their neighbor's wife. They would steal for it, and when that didn't work, they would even kill to get their way. In short, folks then are just about the same as folks today. What about all the other commandments we need? Thou shalt not cheat others. Thou must pay your fair share of income tax. Thou shalt not engage in road rage. Thou shalt not overeat, overdrink, or otherwise overmedicate yourself. Given enough time, I'm sure we could come up with a few more. The ancient religious establishment sure did. They came up with hundreds of laws to try and keep God's people on the straight and narrow. In fact, the laws became so numerous that they were hard to remember, much less keep. A whole group of religious teachers arose just to keep everybody in line. It became so complex that one day, a member of the group of the religiously pure asked the question that had been on everybody's mind. Now, his motives for asking weren't pure. He wanted to pigeonhole Jesus and divide his audience, but Jesus made it into an opportunity for his disciples then and now to learn what God really wants of us. So when he was asked, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses, Jesus said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the other commandments and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. This then is the point. Jesus meant for you and me to love God and to love one another. If we do that, we will honor God and worship him. We won't steal, lie, cheat, commit road rage, or blow our minds with drugs. We will do the right thing, not because a law compels us, but because we love God and we love one another. For all time, Jesus fulfilled the meaning of the law. It is not a matter of believing this or that. Instead, it is an act of love, a love response to the God who made us and a love response to his children. It's not a matter of trying to be flawless so God will consider us good. It is about the love relationship we are to have with one another and with God. So if love is the key to keeping the commandments, how are we to experience that love? The answer is given by the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7-11. through 11. 
we read this. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is born of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. It is not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. Do you know that God loves you just as you are? Has his love changed your heart and mind and life? Receive his love today, the love that changes everything. Then love your neighbor in the same way God loves you. Let us pray. Our Lord, lover of our souls, help us to focus our minds on what is most important. We thank you for the commandments you give us, especially the greatest commandment. We do love you because you first loved us. Your great love sets us free from the bondage of sin and death. It gives us a brand new start. It is grace. Your great grace enables us to love others, to think of them even above ourselves. Make us all instruments of your light, your love, your peace. Amen. What does it mean to follow Christ in a time of social distancing when we wear masks to keep our neighbors safe? and meet safely through the technology God has blessed us with. Honestly, it is a big change. We don't much like it either. We're anxious to get our lives back to normal. But no matter how badly we want it to be normal again, we cannot change the fact that COVID-19 is still devastating our community. In the last two weeks, I have heard of four ministers who have contracted this deadly virus in our county alone. The bottom line is we have to take this threat seriously, creatively, and patiently. The Church of Jesus Christ can do this, but as we just heard in our scripture lesson this morning, we must place the well-being of our neighbor as important as our own. So we press on. Together we will overcome this disease. I mentioned creativity a moment ago because I am learning every day how the creativity we have embraced in recent months is actually helping people to have a better relationship with God because they are learning things in a new way. In a moment, I'm going to share with you an expanded study on the scripture I just spoke on. It had great meaning for the individuals as well as the Jewish nation when Jesus first taught them. I think it has great meaning for us today. In order to help you learn your Bible better, we offer, free of charge, Nurturing Faith Journal and Bible Studies. You can have a free copy of this great resource. Here's how you can get your copy. Come by the church at 110 South Franklin Street in Madison. Email me at cpmcgathy at yahoo.com. That's c-p-m-c-g-a-t-h-y at yahoo.com. Give me a call, 336-548-6112. Or write me at P.O. Box 209, Madison, North Carolina, 27025. You can also access the Bible study directly through our website at www.firstbaptistchurchofmadison.org. The password, by the way, this next two months is the word peace. The scripture for today's study in Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 through 46. This is the living heartbeat of the Christian church and the Christ-following community. It has personal implications for sure, but it also bears National meaning. What I mean by that is simply this. Groups of people called nations have historically molded, been molded by the ways they have understood their relationship with God and with one another. Along with that understanding comes harmony, progress, and peace. Or, sadly, the opposite. Polarization, division, and ultimately, war. We have an alternative. Jesus came to provide hope for the nation. The hope he provided for the nation was powerful and healing. 
Before we begin to explore this passage, we must first understand the differing understandings of the faith that existed among the people of Jesus' day. The religious thinking to which he utters his famous words, let's first review Jesus' words. Then I will talk with you about his teaching. From Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 through 46, as found in the message version of the Bible. That same day, Sadducees approached him. This is the party that denies any possibility of resurrection. They asked, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies childless, his brother is obligated to marry his widow and get her with child. Here's a case where there were seven brothers. The first brother married and died, leaving no child, and his wife passed to his brother. The second brother also left her childless, then the third, and on and on, all seven. Eventually, the wife died. Now, here's our question. At the resurrection, whose wife is she? She was a wife to each of them. Jesus answered, you're off base on two counts. You don't know your Bibles and you don't know how God works. At the resurrection, we're beyond marriage. As with the angels, all our ecstasies and intimacies then will be with God. And regarding your speculation on whether the dead are raised or not, don't you read your Bibles? The grammar is clear. God says, I am, not was, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. The living God defines himself not as the God of dead men, but of the living. Hearing this exchange, the crowd was much impressed. When the Pharisees heard how he had bested the Sadducees, they gathered their forces for an assault. One of the religious scholars spoke for them, posing a question they hoped would show him up. Teacher, which command is God's law is the most important? Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and intelligence. This is the most important, the first on any list. But there is a second to set alongside it. Love others as well as you love yourself. These two commands are pegs. Everything in God's law and prophets hangs from them. As the Pharisees were regrouping, Jesus caught them off balance with his own test question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said, David's son. Jesus replied, well, if the Christ is David's son, how do you explain that David, under inspiration, named Christ his master? God said to my master, sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, if David calls him master, how can he at the same time be his son? That stumped them, literalists that they were. Unwilling to risk losing face again in one of these public verbal exchanges, they quit asking questions for good. Dr. Tony Cartledge, whose insightful writing guides our weekly study, notes this about the group of religious leaders of the Jewish community of Jesus' day when he says, The Sadducees were the fundamentalists of early Judaism. I'd like to focus on that word he uses, fundamentalist. Fundamentalism is a concept with which we are well familiar. Some even believe that the most religious people are fundamentalists. That however, would be at odds with Jesus' conception of religion. Jesus thought the Sadducees were limiting God to their narrow parameters of acceptability. Put another way, if God did not fit into their boxes, then they could not conceive of or accept that God. But there's a problem with that kind of thinking, not only in that day, but even now is simply this. It is not a matter of God fitting into our boxes that we design, but rather our opening up our hearts to understand the God who really exists. Fundamentalists always have a hard time accepting concepts and ideas that fall outside of their narrow understanding. But God calls us to accept the mysterious and include the possibility that God can act beyond our understanding. It requires humility and it requires faith to accept a God who is bigger than we are. In this respect, I believe that the fundamentalists of Jesus' day and fundamentalists that exist within every religion of our day share a common misconception of God. As J.B. Phillips once wrote, their God is too small. 
The religious fundamentalism of Jesus' day refused to even consider that they understood Scripture imperfectly. But just because they had thought a certain way for a long period of time did not, in fact, make it so. In their reading of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, they had determined that there could not be eternal life, only a shadowy existence after death called Sheol. Another religious faction that was popular with the people you will recognize immediately. They were called the Pharisees. On many occasions, Jesus had sharp discussions with both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but on one point. However, what Jesus taught was in strong agreement with the Pharisees. They agreed, based on their reading of the prophets and the poets of the scriptures, that there was a resurrection promised to the faithful. It was on this point of theology that the party of the Sadducees and the party of the Pharisees had intense and heated debates. Now, this argument about the resurrection raged throughout the entire Jewish nation and deeply affected how they thought about their future as a people. Their common problem, though, concerned their nation, a nation that was occupied militarily by a foreign power. They all wanted to get their country back, but they disagreed on how to do so. The Jewish nation of Jesus' day was fractured along theological lines that affected their politics. These two sides, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, resented, and I think it is fair to say, at times even hated one another. It is their debate that prompts the question that begins the passage for today. It is upon this issue that Jesus is questioned. The comment made by Dr. Cartledge is so very important to understand. He writes, The Sadducees and the Pharisees appear to have enjoyed debating each other with trick questions designed to cast doubt on the other's beliefs. In this chapter, however, the two groups turned their attention from each other and focused their attacks on Jesus, who was leading a new movement that threatened them both. Have you ever, in a disagreement with another person, thought you had the ultimate closing argument? Well, this was the case of the questioning Sadducee who put before Jesus a hypothetical situation designed to disprove the notion of the resurrection. The questioner describes a speculative situation in which a widowed woman marries again and again her deceased husband's brothers until they have all died, and then she dies. The Sadducee, disputing the concept of resurrection, asked Jesus to tell him which brother is her husband in the afterlife. Aha, he must have thought, at last we have him. Either Jesus will have to deny the concept of life eternal, or he'll have to affirm a degraded quality of Jewish manhood. And that would result in Jesus losing popularity with the people, especially men who viewed their wives, at least partly, through an angle of ownership. You see, for seven brothers to have to divide ownership of their mutual wife in the afterlife was a diminishment of their manhood. Whenever I get to this passage of Scripture, I think how smug the Sadducees must have felt at that particular moment. They must have admired their brother's intellect. He had trapped Jesus so that he had nowhere to go except down. If he denies the resurrection of the dead, they reason, then he loses popularity with the party of the Pharisees. On the other hand, if he affirms the resurrection, then he agrees that the wife is subdivided among seven brothers, and then Jesus is diminishing the importance of the male. Jesus, however, is unflappable. He does not fall into the trap set for him by his challenger. Instead, he listens carefully and then makes the following observation. He tells them that they have failed to understand the scripture. Boom! There it is! Jesus takes the most religious people, the very ones who had claimed that they know the Bible better than everybody else, and he takes them right back to it and shows them what they have neglected to learn. I might add here something important, a lesson as we learn from the example of Jesus. The very best way to deal with fundamentalists is the Scripture. They do not own the Bible, nor is their understanding 
understanding of it the best. Every week we endeavor in this worship broadcast to bring before you the Bible and teach it according to the best principles of interpretation. This is what Jesus does right here. First, he tells them that their conception of heaven is flawed from the get-go. It is beyond the narrow parameters upon which life on this earth is determined. Next, he tells them that the Bible actually affirms the eternal relationship we have with God and with one another. Again, I can only wonder at those who listened to Jesus as he taught. Did they see one who had genuinely encountered the scriptures? Did they hear God who spoke to them through human beings over the course of many centuries and said something that they all needed to hear? This set them up for the next part of Jesus' teaching, the part that would be the hope for their nation and every nation. The Pharisees must have felt satisfied at how Jesus had answered the inquiry about eternal life. They must have felt justified and may have been a little bit cocky. Now they were ready to have their turn at Jesus. It is necessary here to say a word about who the Pharisees were. The Pharisees were also concerned about the future of the nation. Instead of trying to work out a reasonable compromise with the Roman occupation forces, the Pharisees turned their attention toward the individual. Their reasoning went, if only people would obey the law in every detail, then God would respond and give us our country back. That was why their questioning of Jesus had to do with the meaning and the application of the law. There were... A lot of laws, over 600 in fact. The Pharisees expected people to know every single law and keep them to the best of their ability, yet that was hard to do. There were so many laws to keep track of, and some of the laws seemed to be excessive. The Ten Commandments spoke of setting aside a day for rest called the Sabbath, but other laws aimed at supporting the Sabbath required such meticulous measures that few people could keep them. Nevertheless, the Pharisees were obsessed with the law and felt others should also be. They insisted that by keeping the laws, the, nations would, the nation would be restored by God to its rightful place in the world. It was plain to see, however, that some laws took precedent over other laws. And so a prevailing question among the Pharisees was which law was the most important. The most popular answer was provided in Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This recitation called the Shema was to be recited daily. Naturally, when Jesus was asked which was the greatest commandment, he replied with the Shema. I think it is important here to note that Christianity is not a religion invented out of whole cloth. Christianity is a form of Judaism. It is Jesus' interpretation of the historic Jewish faith that he offers to all who will follow him. Jesus affirms the greatest commandment by saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. But he also adds this, And with all your mind. With all your mind. I can never hear that phrase without thinking of my philosophy of religion professor. Dr. Yandel Woodfin wrote a book about our religion as philosophy, and the title of his book was With All Your Mind. Jesus invited his fellow Jews to think about the meaning of their faith. Jesus invites us to think as well. When I was in seminary, I was deeply impressed that ours is a faith that can withstand the most rigorous philosophical thought. Jesus does not end his teaching about the importance of the law there. Instead, he adds a second commandment, which is as important as the first. In fact, it is a reflection of the first commandment, the Shema. He now offers another, inseparable from the greatest commandment. Jesus says, again drawing from historic Judaism, a passage from Leviticus 19.8. He tells them that they should love their neighbor as they love themselves. Dr. Cartledge puts it this way when he writes, Jesus was not satisfied to leave it there, for the truth of the gospel always calls for 
a response to the gospel. This addition by Jesus clearly bothered the Pharisees. As you see, God loving was one thing, but loving others seemed, well, a bit more complicated. In Luke's gospel, the Good Samaritan parable answers the question of who exactly should I regard as my neighbor? In Matthew's account, he records another line of questioning. This time, Jesus questions them. He asks them what they think about the Redeemer, the Anointed One, the Messiah. The Messiah was a promised one, the hope for the nation, who would come to help their country in her deepest hour of need. But Jesus knew that some of their ideas about the Messiah were off base. As Dr. Cartledge puts it, what did they believe about the Messiah? Would they stick with their traditional beliefs, even though they lead only to bickering? Or would they dare to risk trusting that Jesus really was the Messiah and that he was not the kind of Messiah they expected? We instinctively know the answer to that question. We know the answer to that question because we too struggle with that same question. Are we really willing to accept Jesus as he is, or do we want to make him as we want him to be? Cartledge asks a thought-provoking series of questions. I invite you to consider them personally. God has come to us in Christ as the God of the living, and the God of the loving. Do we want to live? Are we willing to love? Can we believe what Jesus taught? Or do we require more data? How long will we remain silent? The hope for the nation is the hope for every single human being. It is in getting ourselves into proper perspective with Jesus He calls us to have hope in everlasting life, and he also gives us the call to love others right now. To follow Jesus is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. I cannot put it more simply than that. It has all kind of implications for how we act right now. We must show our neighbor whoever he or she is, the same love, the same respect, the same dignity as we would like to have ourselves. The hope for the nation is when all people from every kind of background are treated with dignity and value. This is not some new form of religion, neither is it a new interpretation of an old religion. This is Jesus of Nazareth 101. It has always been the truth of following Jesus. If we can follow him, then we will be able to see healing, restoration, and reconciliation flow from our lives and change our world and our nation and our very hearts. Amen. Thank you for tuning into this worship and study time each Sunday. I would also like to thank all of you who have been so generous in your financial support in this difficult and challenging time. I hope this time of worship and Bible study is meaningful for you each week. You are a blessing to others through your support of this broadcast. It is my sincere hope that you will find renewal and a stronger relationship with the God that loves you. As God has blessed you, so too you bless others. And thank you for that. Remember, we love hearing from you and knowing of your prayers. You can partner with this ministry through a financial donation. Now, through the advancements of technology, that is easy to do. Of course, you can use traditional mail to send in a donation. I will give you the address in just a moment. But now... You can donate safely online through our website at www.firstbaptistchurchofmadison.org. Please pray for us, and if God so directs you, give to help this broadcast continue. I also want everyone to know you may listen anytime to this broadcast or recommend it to a friend by going to our website to hear any of our recorded podcasts. Again, that is at www.firstbaptistchurchofmadison.org. 
If you prefer to write to us, please address your correspondence to First Baptist Church, P.O. Box 209, Madison, North Carolina, 27025. Write to me and let me know of your prayer request. You can send an email at cpmcgathy, that's cpmcgathy, at yahoo.com. And please note, in the, in the subject line, that you are a radio listener. Or call if you like, and leave a message at 336-548-6112. A final word. I trust that God will bless you today. Go on then, and be a blessing to someone else. Tell someone today you love them. May God bring you peace and love and mercy. I'm Dr. Chuck McGathy, and I mean it when I remind us all in the end, no matter what comes your way, there's nothing but grace. We'll conclude our broadcast with Jamie Slocum's Grace Changes Everything. Oh